Hello and welcome to After Office Hours with the Puget Sound Economic Forecaster. We developed this podcast and our social media stream to give you the inside glimpse of what it's like to be sitting in our research center and overhear all of our side conversations as we track what is going on in the economy. In full disclosure, we do miss the office environment where we could actually have these conversations in person rather than on about 15 different communication channels. In response to COVID-19, we have increased the amount of information flowing from our research center with an increase in the frequency of these podcasts, an increased social media posts, and in the development of Western Insights, which is a bi-weekly webinar focused on business aspects of COVID-19. We obviously invite you to join us on all of these platforms. We are now one month out from our first publication of the March forecast. It seems like a great time to talk about what we know now and where our current thinking is going. Before diving into current economic thoughts, let's see who's here today. My name is James McCafferty, and I serve as the general manager and publisher for the newsletter, but it's a team that makes the newsletter happen from outside partners and our center's own research staff. Dr. Hart Hodges is an economics professor at Western Washington University. Hart writes the regional forecast article and will occasionally contribute other articles based on the topics. Hart and I both co-direct the Center for Economic and Business Research at Western. Josh Granbush is the lead research analyst with the Center, where among a long list of things, he manages the forecast model for the forecaster. Josh often contributes many of the articles in the forecaster, including the leading index analysis. In the spirit of game shows, we decided we needed to use the phone-a-friend option this month and reached out to Dr. Brandon DuPont, an economics professor from Western. Truth be told, Brandon's office is down the hall from our research center from a time when we used to actually have offices. But what makes Brandon's perspective unique is he's an economic historian. Among his research is the 19th century banking crisis. He teaches courses in microeconomics, the history of economic thought, political economy, and economic history. We are still practicing good social distancing for this edition of After Office Hours, with not feet but miles between us. So with all of that, grab your beverage of choice. You're likely in your own home after all. And let's take a look at what's happened in the past month. Hart, let's start with you. What's happened in the past month? I honestly don't think anyone has tracked it all. What's the high points? I don't know where to start. Um, I mean, locally, we always have to talk about uh, Amazon or Boeing or some of the major companies. Boeing went from, well, got to close. We had a fatality linked to COVID in the, in the business to, oh, we're going to shut production. Do we take the uh, bailout money from government? Don't want that. If there are strings attached like oversight or even uh, equity stake by the government, round and round they went. Uh, but then saying we're going to start production again. And uh, over the weekend, Boeing completed its first uh, transport mission bringing, what was the number, 500,000 uh, masks from China to New Hampshire. So Boeing is certainly in the news as we talk COVID. Uh, stimulus, stimulus checks, uh, fascinating to watch them go to uh, the wrong bank accounts, uh, even people who were deceased. Uh, and I don't want to make, a, make fun of the IRS. It's an awfully difficult task, right, because they're going off of who filed taxes last year. The payroll protection plan, the paycheck protection plan, uh, ran out of money, right? Uh, but more is on the way. Uh, that's been a struggle for small businesses. Um, 
And you have to ask, is two months going to be enough, right? Because we're looking at stay-at-home orders that can, can be extended well into May. Hopefully, we get uh, some partial openings back up. Stock market, uh, one of the most fascinating things to me, uh, sure, stock market went down and, and back up 20-something percent. Uh, the most fascinating thing, though, is we're in the middle of earnings season, which means companies are reporting their earnings, and part of that is companies giving guidance for what they're expecting in the coming quarters. They're not even giving guidance. Uh, so the, the lack of information is fascinating. Um, and you, uh, investors do need to remember that if the stock market goes down 30% and comes back up 30, it's not back where it started, right? Uh, just because the denominator is changing. Uh, lots of euphoria about, oh, we're, we flattened the curve, uh, we're past the peak, we get to open the economy. The longer we go without real increases in testing capacity and a change strategy there, uh, we're going to have to deal with no football games, that matters to big, big schools, no concerts, so on and so forth. James, I'm just getting started. You asked what's happened in the last month. A lot. Josh, how has this impacted your most recent modeling? Yes, it has uh, changed the trajectory of the modeling entirely. Um, I guess we'll start with Boeing because that's one of the biggest levers we have in the model to change the regional forecast. Um, even if the tech sector has been growing, Boeing, still, Boeing and aerospace in general are still uh, one of the biggest parts. And... Uh, looking at what we've seen in the media, what Boeing has said, um, and of course, like the federal regulations that come with money that may bail out Boeing um, in the instance that some, that airline demand stays muted for a while. Um, we're imagining that over the course of at least Q2, if not also Q3, that up to 30,000 workers in the Puget Sound area for Boeing and aerospace in general experience some sort of loss of work at Boeing, um, whether that's furloughs, layoffs, or having their employment voluntarily bought out. Um, so we built that into the model um, with some uncertainty, but we're expecting most of those workers to come back over the next few years as airline demand ramps back up again. But this is definitely looking a bit like um, 2001 and the years after for airlines. Uh, as far as the rest of the economy, we mostly rely on the blue chip consensus forecast. Um, they've been great about getting us the most up-to-date numbers for our modeling. Um, so that's the GDP forecasts, the uh, uh, unemployment rate, uh, the different Fed rates. I will say that this has come with a lot of uncertainty as well. Uh, their projections have never had such a wide range because it's a consensus forecast. So you have the lows and the highs, um, but they've been helping us with our modeling uh, quite a bit. So the, the, the March forecast we originally issued um, is officially outdated, and we are putting together another coronavirus scenario now that will probably be on the website in the next few weeks. That's perfect. So Brandon, being the economic historian, which is an awesome title, I think over the past <laughs> few years, I've asked you this question more than a dozen times. Have we seen this before? How does this story end? Or at least how did it go last time? And did we actually learn our lessons from our actions or inactions that we did last time? Or is everything just different and there's no comparable? So what say you, Brandon? Have we been down this road before? Well, first of all, you know, it's always interesting that economic historians get really popular when there are disasters around. So financial crises, health crises, and so on, but we appreciate it. Um, yeah, we've seen it a lot, right? I mean, it's not this, this sort of thing 
uh, at least similar things used to happen uh, all the time. I think the the most relevant, um, the one that you hear a lot about these days is 1918, the 1918 flu. Um, that was actually, as I've been reading some articles about this, it's actually uh, quite interesting in, in that it's very similar in some ways, at least in the in the policy reactions. So the 1918 flu lasted about two years, although it was really concentrated in the fall of 1918, kind of October, November up to early 1919. In, in that pandemic, 30% uh, of the population in the United States was in, was infected by the flu. Estimates are that almost 700,000 people died uh, from it. So it was a huge, huge event. Um, there were, as I said, lots of interesting similarities in the in the response. So you see lockdowns, for example, across the country. You see, I think it was in uh, San Francisco, they had mandatory rules that people had to wear masks, there were school closures, there were things like that. The problem is that just as we see now, I think that this, the responses were actually pretty uneven and they were pretty slow. So there's this famous, maybe infamous uh, parade that was held in Philadelphia in the summer of 1918. So in the middle of this, this pandemic and Philadelphia decides why not? Let's hold a parade with 200,000 people packing the streets of Philadelphia. They were actually trying to raise some money for Liberty Bonds for the First World War. That was, of course, as you might expect, that was disastrous, right? So you have hospitals get full, 2,500 people are dead within a week uh, just in the city. So it's happened before. We've had similar responses before. I guess the good news in some sense from the from the history at least of the 1918 epidemic is that the economic effects were pretty severe but they didn't last that long. So there was a bit of a a bounce back, a relatively quick bounce back. The the one the one caveat there is that this was at the end of World War 1 and so you're getting presumably all sorts of economic effects of the of the war and to the end of the war. So it's a little bit hard, I think, to tease out the effects, but it seems like it probably reduced gross domestic product by about a half a percentage point, um, but it did, but the economy did come back relatively, uh, relatively quickly. Brandon, I've seen some reports that show that the recovery didn't happen in all the communities at the same time, the, the areas of the country yeah. at that time that did better with social distancing and, and those types of responses, they actually recovered faster and, and retained that stronger lead for quite some time. Do you expect that as well? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, you know, if history's any guide, which, uh, which we hope it is. Um, yeah. Places like San Francisco uh, back in the, back in the 1918 uh, case, they actually did pretty, they actually did a pretty good job of closing things down. They obviously didn't have vaccines. They didn't have the kind of treatments that we may have for this, hopefully soon. But they did do the social distancing effectively, and they had pretty low infection rates. Their economy came back, I think, pretty, uh, pretty quickly. Um, you also see things like 
uh, higher wages in, in 1918 in cities that had the worst ex- worst experience. That's not too surprising because right, this is a labor supply reduction. And uh, cities that had really high infection rates had wages going up um, uh, much more significantly than, than in other places. So it was a pretty, I think the lesson is it was a pretty uneven um, pretty uneven policy response. Infection rates varied across states and counties and cities, and so the economic contraction and then the rebound was 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 also uh, quite different depending on those things. I'm curious: does the the rebound effect the areas that did recover stronger and faster with better wages? Did that continue forward in time? Did those areas get a competitive advantage of some sort that has propelled them? forward or was it just a, a short-term gain? Yeah, I th- uh, my understanding from just reading some of the literature in this is that it was not, that it wasn't really longer term. I mean, it's, it, it, once things kind of balance out after the economy gets back into uh, normal, kind of, in, into more normal conditions in the 1920s, then you start seeing those effects dissipate. But I think for the short term, you, you see like some of the wage effects. And there's other interesting stuff, by the way. I mean, there's some literature that looks at, you know, cities that had worse air pollution, for example, cities that used a lot of coal-powered industry. They did a lot worse in terms of mortality rates, in terms of infection rates. So there's interactions between environmental conditions and and uh, and, and mortality, and that no doubt impacts the. Uh, the economic performance in those places, uh, maybe for a little bit longer, but I think it does tend to overall come back to some normalcy after a few years. So it's mostly shorter term. Perfect. Perfect. It's interesting how much that seems to reflect what we're seeing now. Um, There's a ton of heterogeneity between the state's uh, infection rates right now. I mean, I, I was reading earlier, Hawaii um, has done a really great job of testing their population and have pretty low infection rates and death rates. Um, and then you go over to New York and New Jersey and you um, the testing hasn't been rolled out as, as well and the, uh, the infection rates are much higher. Um, I am curious, um, I, I'm not too sure, was the Spanish flu, was that global? Yes, it was it was um, global. It actually it was pretty bad in uh, in Europe. Um, and in fact, I mean, we don't even really know where it came from. There are two or three different hypotheses about where it comes from. There's a lot of folks think it came from a, a military base in Kansas. Other people think it came from parts of Europe. So yeah, kind of similar in that sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess it just starts. It makes me start to think about. Um, what the global landscape may look like afterward. I know we just talked about how there wasn't a long-term effect, but there was also a world war right after, um, right. which scrambled the the world order a bit. Um, and so I am curious, you know, when you see a country like China have, uh, well, I mean, of course their statistics are massaged, but the, the infection rate and the death rate much lower than here in the U.S. and then Taiwan, um, where we can trust the data a bit more, uh, having a great response. And then you look at Singapore, and they had a great response at first. Now they're getting a second wave that's bad. It just makes me think uh, there's lots of unanswered questions about what the world's going to look like in a year. Yeah, by the way, there were um, – you, you asked about the whether this was worldwide in 1918. Um, there were actually up to – I think the top end of the estimates are around 50 million people who died in that 
Um, okay. There were about 700, a little fewer than 700,000 in the U.S., so huge impacts, you know, world, worldwide. Yeah, okay. Josh, I think looking looking ahead actually makes a lot of sense here then. Um, we'd be remiss in not bringing up retail sales and construction. Can we start with retail sales? Any changes you're thinking about in the upcoming forecast? Yeah, um, just based on the unemployment data, obviously leisure and hospitality, uh, the industry that contains hotels, bars, restaurants, artists, entertainment venues, um, that's going to be hit pretty hard. Um, the numbers are still preliminary, uh, but we saw, I believe in March, it was like an uh, above 8% reduction in retail sales overall and uh, especially hit hard in those industries. I expect the retail landscape to look pretty different on the other side of this, uh, especially small businesses. Um, as Hart was talking about, we don't seem to have a great safety net for these businesses um, looking at just a two-month window when this could go on for a year or more. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. Even the blue chip consensus forecast had some pretty high uncertainty around personal consumption expenditures and things like that. What our model is saying, beyond what we've told it about this specifically hitting bars and restaurants, because the you know the model doesn't know about stay-at-home orders, we see vehicle parts dealers, auto purchases uh, definitely low, gasoline sales very low. Of course, we heard today, um, and, and this will date the podcast, but. The crude oil just went negative in the U.S. I think it's for the first time. Heartbeat may be able to speak to that more. And I can also speak to construction if you'd like. Yes. Yeah. So in our state, where we have banned residential construction, I think actually all forms of construction. Uh, down in California, residential construction is allowed to continue. So the impact nationally is hard to predict. Obviously, in our region, we're not going to be building anything until the governor says so. Uh, we know there is a shortage of housing, um, and that was just starting to be amended before this all happened. Housing starts had finally risen above that 50-year average that we that we track. It's it's hard to tell what's, what this is going to look like on the other side. But if tech keeps hiring in the area, you know, with Amazon's been growing, Microsoft has been doing a lot of business, especially their their web service platforms. The demand might still be there for homes, and our model seems to think that uh, we're still going to see you know, once this starts to die down and construction comes back up, some activity in the housing market uh, ramping back up, just like it was at the end of 2019. I thought it was interesting in the, the retail sales data that just came out for March, that we had core retail sales actually went up year over year, whereas total retail sales went negative, of course, as we would have expected. But the, the core retail number is the one that tracks closer to GDP. So it's going to be a real interesting story of what data points people look at as to understanding what what's going on in the economy. Mm -hmm. Do you do we think we're going to see a, a sudden spurt in um, construction coming out of this because there's going to be this unmet demand? Or do you think it's just going to continue on the ramp that it was already on? It's going to want to have that spurt, but I think the biggest problem is that, well, there's going to be just reduced demand overall because people's incomes have taken a huge hit, but also suppliers. The uh, lumber suppliers in British Columbia have announced long-term cuts to production while they deal with the coronavirus. And uh, if you don't have the wood, you can't build the home. So I think... I think this is going to last longer than we than we expect at the current moment. But once all the pieces are in place, I expect demand to start ramping back up. All right. And of course, construction leads us to the obvious elephant in the room, which is I don't think we get away without talking about employment or in this case, unemployment is really the topic. I've seen headlines of 30 plus percent forecasts. I see our own work, which shows much less. Um, 
I feel like when I look at all of these numbers, I'm missing something. So what am I missing when I'm looking at unemployment numbers? Well, let's let's definitely talk about how unemployment will look uh, around here. And this is from our most recent modeling with the the, the recent blue chip numbers. Average unemployment for the year is going to be about 11.9%. Obviously, I there's a lot of asterisks given with that number. Um, there's a lot we don't know. But this assumes a constant labor force participation rate and looks at the Fed's projections for unemployment. But the interesting thing is, um, you know, even if we might expect it to peak in Q2 around 16.9%, these aren't all people unemployed like we would expect to see in a normal recession. A lot of them are just furloughed, uh, still receiving benefits, um, but not working. And it, it all depends on how people respond to the BLS's question, BLS being the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The question asks, are you working for a wage? And if people are still receiving a paycheck or receiving benefits, but they aren't working, the technical answer is no. So we may see unemployment reach these crazy historical numbers, but that won't mean the same thing for the economy that it did in the recession, or even looking back to when we actually saw numbers like this, the Great Depression. Um, so that's that's you know that's going to color a lot of things, and I know that they're tracking people who have been laid off normally, who have been laid off because of coronavirus, who have been laid off with extenuating circumstances, like we just talked about. Um, but there's no data on that yet. Brandon, let me ask you this because we're going back to history here. So I've read Josh just used the word uh, depression. So I read something the other day that talked about how unemployment now is above the level that we had in the depression. Is that true? Um, well, I mean, the depression, the, the highest number that you see from the Great Depression is about between 20 and 25 percent unemployment rate at the depth. Um, so it seems like we have a ways to go to get to get there. But I guess if I mean, I have seen some of these estimates that you know, based on weekly claims and so on that maybe you're getting close to that but I would I would be surprised if you're there yet but um, but who knows you know how, how that plays out ultimately but the underlying fundamentals are different today versus the depression yeah definitely yeah I mean the depression I, I actually like the way um, Paul Krugman has referred to this as a as a as a um, as an induced coma um, whereas the Great Depression. I mean, there were structural, fundamental problems with with the economy and with the uh, you know Fed's policy response in, in 1929, 1930, 31. So, um, I, yeah, I think it's it's fundamentally different. So even if we were to see unemployment rates reach depression level, uh, d depression levels, uh, I I don't think it means the same thing as it did back then. All right. So, Hart, talk to me about shape of recovery. What, what does this look like on the climb out? Yeah. I'm going to be the traditional economist and say, on, on the one hand, the shape of the recovery could be U-shaped, um, meaning everybody doesn't go back to work and we all bounce back with a sharp V. Um, we know there's going to be uh, some businesses that, that linger and struggle a, a little bit because we can't uh, have the same density in restaurants. We can't have uh, the same size conventions or meetings or sporting events. So uh, the, the optimistic me says uh, U-shaped, uh, but that requires a certain amount of, of testing 
and it, and it assumes no resurgence in the virus in the fall or after we start getting together in, in groups again. You know, an, another opportunity, another description would be sort of a, a very sloppy U, uh, where the, the right side of the U is, is a little bit uh, slanted. If you think about the University of Washington's football program, you know, what does it mean for the university to not have that revenue? I mean, they're, they're going through budget scenarios right near right now where they have a football season, but it's not quite the same. So they're looking at a, a, a few million dollars less coming in. But their, their moderate and worst case scenario is tens of millions of dollars due to lost ticket sales to sporting events, uh, lost donations, et cetera. You think about what happens at the convention center or what happens on tourism in general on the waterfront and Pike Place Market. And, uh, if we can't have some degree of co-location, now there's a lot of businesses that are, that are going to struggle. And the longer we go without good testing programs, the, the worse the U is drawn, if you will. So on the on the one hand, I'm saying a, a nice U because we we do things well and, and we get this economy going again the second, second half of the year, latter part of the year. But Brandon mentioned the parade in Philadelphia. I, I worry that some of the protests uh, to get the economy going again causes a relapse. And what if schools don't start on time in the fall because we're not ready? Uh, that changes the shape of the recovery. Okay, with all that in mind, Hart, the obvious question here is, the assumption is different sectors are going to recover at different timelines. What, which, which sectors do you think would be the most likely ones to recover the fastest? Oh, I think Josh is already hitting on that. Uh, some of the tech-type jobs, uh, some of the things in tech and communication where you have flexibility in how you work, uh, those sectors... Uh, you asked me about the stock market earlier. Some of those sectors are, are up uh, in all of this, and some of those companies' uh, stock prices are, are up, uh, not down with the rest of the market. Uh, so you're going to have some on the tech side, some on the communication side doing well. Meanwhile, uh, Josh already mentioned leisure and hospitality, uh, travel, uh, a, a number that are, that are going to struggle. Um, and that certainly relates to place as well. You can pick uh, Las Vegas as the poster child, but you've also got Miami, southern part of New Jersey, where leisure, hospitality, gaming uh, are the drivers. Uh, those areas are going to struggle. You mentioned oil, you know, Houston, uh, Houston, Texas. Oil areas struggle. Areas that are more tech-oriented, Seattle being in that list, do better. I'd like to add something. Um... How could you? That was so complete. God. <laughs> um, just thinking about, you know, talking about how tech is probably going to be a big part of the recovery. I think tech's also going to be a big part of the testing response um, because I've seen Google and Apple, I believe, are currently collaborating on a project to do the kind of tracking and isolating um, that South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, et cetera, have been implementing. Um, and I'm interested to see how uh, Americans view that 
as an invasion of their privacy or as a effective way of reopening the economy because it's definitely not being led by the government. Um, so I'm interested to see if uh, private industry will step in and how the incentives might align there. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts, Hart, but I think that's going to be a, an important part of all of this. No, you're watching governors create plans, try to coordinate with each other, not a, not a nationally um, organized effort in terms of testing or in terms of reopening the economy and what, what phases. It ripples down to, to businesses. Some pretty remarkable innovation in terms of getting PPE, you know, protective equipment made. You know, some wonderful stories coming out of towns like Edmonds where you had uh, manufacturing firms switch around and start working with the Providence healthcare system, making uh, masks and, uh, and other equipment. It's been businesses stepping up uh, on their own, uh, and I, I think we're going to see that continue. So, Josh, as uh, as we start to wrap this uh, this amazingly good podcast up, <laughs> we create all these monthly updates. So, I should say, you create a lot of these monthly updates for our online subscribers. Can you share anything that uh, you're looking towards for the next set of updates? Yeah, this time we're going to be dealing with data from February, and I say this time to mean the April updates to these monthly publications. So especially in our region, you're going to see the first effects of the spread of the pandemic because we had the first U.S. case uh, here in the Seattle area. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the even more recent data, like the unemployment claims from March, um, because you know a lot of the picture didn't really become clear until March. The uh, shelter-at-home orders didn't come in until, the, I believe, the second week of March. Uh, I am most interested in our May monthly update, though, and that'll be coming out mid-May, as this will have data from March and the bigger picture on a lot of this is going to become clearer, at least for the economics of it. The April update for our current economic indicators and the monthly leading index are up now on our website, economicforecaster.com, so check those out. That brings a close to this edition of After Office Hours with Puget Sound Economic Forecaster. I want to thank Brandon DuPont for joining us today. While we'd only plan on doing these quarterly, we may continue to create additional sessions as conditions change. We encourage you to follow us on social media and to be sure to catch up with Western Insight sessions as well. You can always reach us via our website, cebr.wwu.edu, or by email, cebr.wwu.edu, with questions, comments, or if you're interested in having us speak at an event, at least virtually. From all of us at Western Washington University, have a great day.